Today we are reading from the book of Job, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, if you'd like to join with me. For misery does not come from the earth, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But human beings are born to trouble, just as sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. He does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. I made my husband watch a movie with me yesterday called Dick Johnson is Dead. It's a um, documentary, and my husband loves documentaries, um, and I love the movie. And so I wanted to share it with you today. Filmmaker Kirsten Johnson makes this documentary with her father. It celebrates their life, their relationship, and their sense of humor. In the movie, Kirsten and her dad keep filming scenes of him dying in lots of different accidents. And so there's an air conditioner who falls on his head. There's a construction worker that impales him with a board. He falls down the stairs. It's just strange, dark comedy. Um, And so I have the trailer for you today. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking, just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. (laughs) He said yes. She kills me multiple times. Action! The resurrected dad. Yeah, resurrected dad. (laughs) (laughs) But now it's upon us the beginning of his disappearance. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. If you know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night, you got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. man, sweetie. Your father is a wreck. It's just inevitable and a part of who we all are. Yeah. The fact that he's willing to keep doing this. He's doing for you with love. He's doing it for me with love. Yeah, he'll do anything for me. Can you just, like, put one arm up against the wall? Like, yeah, that's nice. I hope nobody's left me already because of that choice that I made. So in case you didn't catch it, Johnson's father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and this movie deals with the reality of death and acknowledges his decline because of this horrible disease. In addition to his death, her film depicts her father enjoying the afterlife with her mother who was already deceased. That was the dancing black and white head scene. Um, 
she hoped, the filmmaker, Kirsten, she hoped to make a tribute to her father because she just loves him so much. And making the movie was a coping mechanism for both her and her dad. I would actually highly recommend it. I don't know that my husband would say the same thing. <laughs> but two of the things that struck me about the movie that I think were so poignant was that they did... Uh, he was having to move in with her, and so he had to sell his home and let go of his practice. He'd been a psychiatrist. And so um, they were selling and going through everything, and then he was moving all the way to New York City to live in a one-bedroom apartment with his daughter. And um, so this church that they had, she had grown up in and her parents had always attended in California, they went ahead and had a funeral. Um, even though he wasn't dead, they wanted it on film, and um, they pretended like he was, and he stood in the balcony and got to hear all the nice things that people said about him. And it made me think, actually, that's the better option. Uh, I remember when my grandfather was retiring and being honored, and these people all said great things about him, my grandmother looked at him and said, they're preaching your funeral, right? And so the, that was just a beautiful scene. But even though he wasn't dead, the best friend who gave the eulogy, oh my gosh, here I go. Okay, the best friend who gave the eulogy um, was losing his friend who was moving across the country, who was losing his memories, was losing, you know, this friendship that had spanned decades. And so he gave the eulogy. And then when uh, Dick Johnson came from the balcony, he walked down the center aisle of the church, and everybody stood and gave him a standing ovation. It's a beautiful scene. But in the corner, in the front of the church, was the best friend sobbing, right? Because, well, you know why. And the best friend stood there in the midst of the joy that he was still alive and he was there. His grief and loss was still immense. The other thing that I thought was so beautiful about the movie, he actually mentions in the trailer, was that what he hated so much about it was that he kept hurting people's feelings. One of the women said that... Um, her, she had called Dick Johnson when her husband died. He was her first phone call. But then because of the disease, she'd run into him recently, and he greeted her, and he knew who, he was, who she was, but he said, how's your husband? You know, and he hated that he had inflicted that pain on her because of his loss of memory. When, when I was so excited about this series in the garden and the concept of the seasons of life... I thought it was really important that we talk about death and winter as one of these seasons because it is natural and it normal. And, but I had no idea that all these months later that I would be in such sort of a fragile place to try to have these, this conversation with you today. I didn't know my father was gonna have a stroke. I had no idea that my cousin Christy would have ovarian cancer. You know, these things that are so personal to me. But the reality is I can't talk about death like it's impersonal 
because it is very, very personal. And one of the things that we know about death is that everyone is completely different. There are no two alike because every person is completely different. Death is one of the most challenging and conflicting subjects encountered by anyone. Knowing what to say or how to act or what to do are common questions and concerns that not just mourners, but their family, friends, their churches alike. The mention, just saying the word death, often brings sadness and sense of loss. One of the things that I notice is that when we talk about someone who's died, even if they're in the 90s, we're always shocked, right? We just can't believe it. We failed to see death in a sense of normalness. We still always see it, no matter how great someone's life is, as a tragedy, even though we know it is the eventual end for all of us. As Benjamin Franklin said when he talked about the Constitution, <laughs> the only thing certain are death and taxes. The first time as a young woman that I had a friend who had a death in his family, one of my best friends, I called my grandmother. I said, what am I supposed to do? And she said, you cook. That's what we do. <laughs> you cook and you take food to people. And, and, and if you're really organized, you'll get lots of people to take food to, and to the family. And I always thought that was so strange because so many people in trauma and grief, they don't eat. They don't want to eat. They've lost their appetite. Uh, but they have company coming. And so this idea of showing love by providing food, we still do. When we had an estate sale business, my mom and her partner did it for years, and then Hillary and mom and I did it, we always knew what kind of person it was when you pulled out their casserole dishes and it had their return address labels on them or their names on a piece of tape that's faded from being washed so many times. And, and we always thought, oh, this is one of those people, right? Those nice people who show up with food when people are in a difficult place. But another thing we do as Christians is we offer words of comfort and we want to say something to help. And um, often what we do then is when we say these platitudes, we do something that undergirds theologically their relationship with God or could actually hurt their faith. I uh, have told a story before about a young woman who came to Living Water, and I can't even remember what I was preaching on that day, but when it was over, she asked me to come to one of the rooms, and she just sobbed and cried, like so much it wet my clothing cry on me, and all I thought was, I said something awful, and I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, right? But then she told me it was the first time she'd been in church since she was 19 because she was pregnant at 19 and her mom died suddenly. And that the preacher actually said to her, your God needed, her God needed your mom more than you do. And she never went to church again. And she was so mad at God that that barrier was thrown up. She wasn't able to lean in at the time when she needed God the most. And so I wanna to say to everyone who's listening, if you don't hear anything else, keep your mouth shut. It's better to not say anything at all 
than it is to say something that might hurt or would diminish someone's pain in an effort to comfort that keeps them from being able to lean into God. I would suggest if you have to say something, just say, I'm sorry. I was thinking about when my grandparents both died 90 days apart. I was working at Faith then, and I don't remember anything anyone did, food, conversations, cards. I remember none of it. But I do remember Kirby Crow. He saw me, and he just went like this. That was it. And I had never hugged Kirby before. He has kind of a rough, gruff, resting, mean face. <laughs> but he had, his daughters were in my youth group. His wife was one of my best volunteers. I knew he was a big old teddy bear. I just stepped into that embrace, and he just patted me, and he never said a word. And in all those months, that was the thing that I remembered the most, was just a big bear hug, an acknowledgement that he recognized that I was hurting. I think when Christianity wanted to separate ourselves from Judaism so much that we gave up some things that we should have held on to, like the steps that the Jewish tradition has in grief and in death. And so I wanted to share some of those uh, with you because I, I find them very comforting and I wish someone had said these things to me earlier. But before I tell you what they do, I want to tell you why. We have to understand the treatment of death in Judaism according to the Jewish faith and the customs they see as helping with the coping process. Regardless of whether the life is taken by natural causes or an accident or an early death, it is important to know that in Judaism, death is not ever considered a tragedy, but rather a natural part of the cycle of life. A traditional Jewish viewpoint is that every event, including death, happens for a reason, even though it may be difficult and we don't understand why. Some of the rituals that they have is right after a death, the um, members of the family who are of the same sex do a ritual washing. They wrap the body in a plain white shroud because in death, God sees us all as equal. So there's no rich, there's no poor. Everyone has the same kind of box, the same kind of garment, which is this white shroud. There is a sitting with the body and the reading of the Psalms which I thought, how beautiful is that? So they take turns staying with the body and reading out loud the Psalms until the actual burial, which is usually within 24 hours of the death. My cousin, Sean, who was six months younger than with me, than me, died of breast cancer. And they lived way down in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. And so it was here at St. Francis uh, when she uh, died. And all these people were there and everybody left to go make phone calls and make arrangements and do all of those things. And so I stayed with her body and it was for four hours. And it wasn't, you might think super creepy or anything, but it wasn't at all because 
I loved her, and so I just talked to her. And I know if anybody walked by, they would think I was crazy, right? Who said she's in there talking to herself? But I just talked to Sean. You know, nobody interrupted me. I got the room. <laughs> but I just said things that came to my heart. But I thought, I wish I had known about some of these things. A beautiful ritual cleansing, the reading of the Psalms. I think that would have helped me for those four hours, that time. And then uh, another thing that they do is they sit in Shiva. And so Shiva lasts for seven days. You may have seen movies or heard. They cover all the mirrors in the home uh, with black cloth or paper. And um, the family gathers and they literally sit together. They give up whatever arguments, you know how families are, that they've had with each other. And they sit for seven days and they tell stories about the one that they have lost. And during that time, other friends and people come and sit and tell stories. And so it's really nice because there's, there's like a progression of things to do. And then at 30 days, they typically have the unveiling. And that's when the, uh, they go to look at the stone at the cemetery and um, the people that are close to the deceased come and they again read psalms and pray and they unveil the stone and then each of the family members leaves a stone there in memory or in solidarity there's lots of reasons but those are some of the things that they do um, and i think it helps people cope because you have, no matter how deep your grief, how much you want to crawl under the covers and never get out again, that you have these steps, right? 24 hours, seven days, 30 days, and then there's another thing they do on the anniversary. And so they've been given these things, um, these ways besides cooking, right, <laughs> that we could do. Um, this week, we are one year away from when everything was shut down because of the pandemic. I don't know if you realized that this is the anniversary of that event. Um, we have said often here at the church that we're building this airplane while we fly it because nobody knows what to do. We haven't done this before. It's all new. But this year has been literally marked with death and the counting of death. There's been so much loss and isolation and depression. Some people have actually found it very helpful to be forced to take some Sabbath time, to reconnect with their families, to be intentional about reaching out to loved ones that they realized they hadn't connected to. I was reading about a woman named Julia Alvarez who had lost someone and was really struggling with her grief. And someone encouraged her to take up centering prayer with her church. And <laughs> she acted like I probably would have. She came up with all the reasons why that wasn't a good idea and how she's a total failure at centering or prayer and, and being still and being quiet. But she decided to participate anyway. And when she was asked why she was there, she answered, I blurted out that I had come to learn how to die. 
And she goes on to say, I thought that the group would sigh and then single me out as a soul that needed some serious work. And they wouldn't have really been very far off the mark. But nevertheless, instead, everyone nodded. We're all here to learn how to die. Sometimes in the seasons of our life, we get stuck in winter or grief. And we can't glimpse what is next because we're overwhelmed in that place where we are. I posted on my social media account last week a picture of my daffodils in the yard and I put hope bloomed in my yard. This series, making the devotions, writing curriculum, preaching has really made me had to dive into my own stuff as I tried to help all of you understand and get this concept. But this last year has been so isolating and we have faced with constant grief. We've had loss where we couldn't go to the funeral. We couldn't tell the stories. We couldn't participate in the natural rhythm of saying goodbye. We have been disappointed with those that we are no longer in relationship or even those we have fought with and disagreed with who we used to admire and respect. We have seen families that not just one person died, but as it spread because of a wedding or a funeral or a family gathering, had multiple losses. And so that's why I thought in the midst of this season, we need to take a moment with Job and recognize how normal and natural suffering and death can be. Job is a man who loses everything, his spouse, his children, even his livestock. Then his friends show up to offer words of comfort and they say terrible things like, why, what did you do to cause this? Asking what he did to deserve this, just like I talked about a moment ago, the words that were not helpful in the midst of his grief. We read in the scriptures that his skin is covered with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And there's that vivid description of the scraping of the sores. But the text I chose isn't Job crying out to God. It's God talking to Job. I want to read it again. For misery does not come from the earth, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but human beings are born to trouble, just as sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. How he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. In the midst of Job's suffering, God says, trust me, don't give up on me. There are still miracles to be had. And Job listens, and even when he's flinging his anger and his frustration and his despair, he never steps away 
or gives up on God. Pastor Charlotte asked the Ad Council to read this book that I have to confess is really big. And so now she's writing synopsis of each chapter for everyone because she really thinks it's important and she wants us to know what it says. And she's telling me about this uh, metaphor in the book about a foot that is planted like a rock and how the other one is allowed to dance. Well, I'm an old basketball player and I said, that's a pivot foot. That's exactly what that is. And so um, I'm going to have to step from behind here. I told the camera earlier that I'm going to move. But the reality, for those of you that don't know what a pivot foot is, and those of you who are wondering how I'm going to make this metaphor have anything to do with God, uh, here we go. So a pivot foot in basketball is usually when you've lost your dribble and you can't go any further and you're stuck in one place. You typically have the ball. You, well, you have to have the ball. You have the ball, and you have the option of one foot that cannot move the entire time, and that is your pivot foot. It has to stay in that location, but you are allowed to pivot on that foot in lots of different ways. And the point of all that pivoting is to find some new direction to find somebody to throw the basketball to, to figure out a way how to get out of whatever trouble you've gotten in where you can't move anymore. And so um, when Pastor Shia was describing this idea of this rock and this foundational place and then this dancing foot, of course it makes sense. And so I thought about the basketball, this thing you're protecting as the mission statement of the church inviting people to Christ-centered service. This is who we are and what we are about, and that is what we are protecting. And then our pivot, our rock, our place that we are standing firm in are our core values. The things that we say are unique about this congregation that we have claimed for ourselves, come as you are, lead with love, right? These are the things we're not negotiable. But this other foot, the things that we have had to do, the ways we have adapted, the creative things we have done and will do, the changes that we will make in order to stay here and hold this, that is the pivot foot. That is the metaphor that we are still standing in this spot. We are still holding this to be true, but we have been forced in this last year to let this foot dance, to be creative, to take risk, to try new things, to wear masks and do Zoom and to be outside, right? But this piece has not changed. This is who we are. This is what we're about. We have to be willing to let this foot dance. As we move forward, we live in a world of uncertainty. And guess what? None of us like it. <laughs> we want some certainty. We yearn some normal. We want things to be as they used to be but we've lost that. Things are different. We are a new 
And yes, some of our life feels completely normal. Some of the things that we used to do, we're doing again. Some of the relationships that we used to be in have gotten to the place with vaccines where they can gather at table again. But we can't forget an entire year with loss and grief and isolation and death. We can't pretend it didn't happen because it did. And so we make a choice. We decide who we are going forward. How do we let that foot dance? As we step out of winter, if we are struggling to glimpse the possible, the new life in the garden, I encourage you to open up and glimpse the possibilities of the fertile in front of us. I hope you let the door of your grief just open a crack so that healing can happen, so you can glimpse what might be next. I pray that we can be like Job and stay in love with God even when it's really, really hard to do. And as we yearn for predictability in a world that does not offer this option, I hope that we have firmly planted our foot with God and can allow our imagination to help us glimpse the way forward together. We all choose. Do we stay in winter or do we choose winter?